The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety starting to emit from you. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. With the abrupt shutdown of Bauer, New Zealand lost many love titles and got a glimpse into the challenges of running magazines in this new media environment and new time of business unusual. Many commentators wondered if the foreign-based owners used the crisis as an opportunity to bail out of a hard market. Whatever the reason, hundreds of jobs and many esteemed mastheads are no longer in operation and contributing to our culture. What does it take to run magazines locally? What is involved in creating something people love to spend time with, something current but with shelf life in this always new media environment? And what does the new business reality mean for the sustainability of the titles we love? Well, one local title that's grown over recent years is Homestyle, the magazine edited by Alice Lyons and managed by her partner Nicholas Burrows. Burroughs is also chairman of the Magazine Publishers Association and uniquely situated to let us know what it's like out there. And today, they both join us by Zoom. Kia ora, good afternoon, how are you? Hi, Simon. Hi, Simon. Well. Hey, <laughs> great, so nice to have you on. Um, first up, tell us the story of Homestyle. How did that come about more than 13 years ago? So basically, I guess Actually, Homestyle had more of a, um, it was a more of a practical um, guide to building in the, in the first instance, where we shared different ways of um, you know, basically guiding people through building your own home. And, um, yeah, that was really the sort of kicking off point from there. Um, After the GFC, it became a bit more of a lifestyle title, so more well-rounded sort of the feeling of home rather than the practical side of purely building. And how did you you grow it after the the GFC and turn it into the magazine that people would recognise today? So I think that what has always been important from us, um, you know, well, from you know our involvement in it as a team, um, is creating something that's really niche um, and something that is kind of you know working to the needs of like our local you know um, audience. 
So as well as having that kind of core content, which looks at, you know, how to create a home, whether it is the more practical sides, you know, engaging an architect or, you know, using your Kiwi ingenuity to sort of take on your own renovation. Um, equally for us, um, growing was about creating a presence in the local um, creative community as well. So um, we really like to be able to ch you know, champion local designers, what's going on in the industry, emerging makers, artists, and um, I guess that growth and having a stronger editorial voice rather than the sort of practical trade publication that it perhaps started with, um, then went on to attract a greater advertising audience. Um, so both readership and advertising um, grew with us being able to establish more of a unique voice. Yeah, and how do you strike that balance between um, the kind of, because you do a really great line in things like um, uh, branded content, uh, and how do you strike that balance between the advertiser pieces and the editorial pieces to make a magazine viable today? So what is integral to that for us is that everything um, has that editorial overview of it. Um, we don't really engage in relationships that are just, you know, slap a logo on a double page spread of text with some supplied imagery. What's most important for us is basically creating something that has authenticity, I guess, really for, you know, from what the advertiser is trying to communicate, but also something that is of true value to our readers. Um, so in that kind of process, when we do engage with brands to, you know, share their messages, um, both Nick and I will be involved in that conversation. So it's not some sort of isolated salesperson. It is, you know, the two key people in the business having the conversation about how we can get somebody's message and, you know, further amplify that with our audience. And, you know, when you say there, the two of you there, like how important is it to have that kind of lean operation to make magazines work today? As um, I imagine that between the two of you, you do a lot of the jobs. Yeah. So our team is actually only three people in our core. You know, it's myself, um, Nick, and our art director, Juliet Wanty. And then we also have a part-time deputy editor, Philip Apprentice. And of course, a wider network of, you know, stylists and photographers and writers contributing. But all those major decisions about what goes into the magazine is really happening between Nick, myself and Juliet. Yeah, and we've never really had a um, that kind of church and state kind of model where the advertising salesperson sells something and then comes back to the office and they all say, well, you're mad, we're not going to do that. Uh, we've always had a really close sort of um, a close operation in that regard. Yeah, tell tell me about. I saw this great story about um, the recent rebrand you did that looks fantastic uh, with the magazine and how that led to an immediate twenty five percent lift in sales. Like, how important is it to kind of have that um, that tight team and that really strong kind of brand and visual identity? Yeah, so the rebrand, it's interesting with magazines because you're working, you know, issue to issue and um, production timelines are quite tight. So often it's quite hard to actually make time for, you know, additional changes and design considerations. Um, but the rebrand was something that we knew we wanted to do for quite a wee while. Um, 
but then in actually strategizing it and coming together with that, it happened quite quickly. Um, and so, yeah, it was two years ago now that we actually did that. And our art director, um, yeah, so Julia oversaw um, how that would work aesthetically. And our key goal there was basically creating an exterior packaging for the magazine that matched the content that we were sharing. Um, so it's often believed by, you know, in, in, in the kind of traditional publishing that it's scary to change your masthead because people might not recognize you on the um, supermarket shelves. And I guess, well, Nick, you probably even had some experience when we were actually thinking about rebranding of people thinking that we were crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a drastic sort of thing. We didn't want to do a, um, oh, let's just bump up the, t the type a little bit or add a bit of kerning. It, it was like, we've got to do something that's recognizable and starts conversations. And um, yeah, I did show it to other people in the industry and got a few sort of funny looks like, God, our distributor, you know, good guy, but he thought I was nuts. So, you know, a week later when we got that sales data back through, it was pretty vindicating. I mean, it, you might say it could have yeah. gone either way, but. Because often when you do do a rebrand in publishing, you have an expectation that you may have up to a 30% loss in sales. Oh. So to have that. Um, 30? 30? Yeah, anyway. Maybe I'm making that up. Some loss. <laughs> Some good. loss in sales. So to have that um, <laughs> so to have um, that, you know, come across as like a resounding success and to be so well received, yeah, just really reassured us that what we were doing was right. And um, in turn that, you know, it it worked out that it actually led to other greater partnerships as well. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the use of colours um changing is like the border motif on the covers and stuff is so cool and keeping it fresh like a really lovely um really lovely kind of like uh way that you do what you cover like stay relevant with design and and, and stay in the moment which is so cool like how do you stay relevant with things because it must have changed over the years of running the magazine with all of the challenges of this always on media culture and people you know tweeting out or instagramming different things every day and when you have to make something that stays relevant and stays um vital for the 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 period between publishing and stuff how do you how do you work on those challenges yeah, so I guess in a way we don't seek to react to trends, but rather, um, you know, represent a way of life, which is about, you know, making a space that serves you best as a family or household, um, rather than, you know, just like following whatever the latest Insta interior craze is. Um, so Juliet and I will like kind of throw our net wide in terms of, you know, figuring out what is going on in a worldwide stage, um, you know, from furniture fairs to art shows to, you know, various um, different projects from architects around the globe and kind of to get a bit of a feeling of what the interior mood is. And um, I guess in a way, if you do sort of talk about trends, though, it's almost that kind of social trend forecasting rather than just the aesthetics. So we'll look at different things like that. Like um, we are big fans of Lee Aldercourt. She is um, a, a well-regarded um, trend forecaster and talking about the sort of emotional values of the environments that we create and things. And I think she's had, you know, she's had a few interviews recently, you know, pre and post COVID that have really resonated with us about 
where we are in the world and how to make a home and things. Um, and then we'll also take more of like a look at what our local industry is doing and our local creative community and the sort of smaller movements that are directly affecting us here. And they help guide the mood from issue to issue more. Yeah, and I guess the other impact of, you know, the always on Facebook and Instagram and the like is is the advertising model. Like, um, how do you counter that as a as a magazine when the um, measurability of those online forms are, are so strong? Like, what's the what's the value proposition that you're able to do, and what's the special things you're able to do for your your advertisers? Yeah, I mean, it's a question we get you know, profit up to us about every 30 minutes, but, um, <laughs> you know, not all things that can be counted count. Um, you know, we try not to play in the field of scale because we can't, you know, most publishers in New Zealand are not going to be able to compete with Google or Facebook or, or stuff, the trade me, you know, the large, the large kind of entities, platforms. Um, and our offering is more about making sure that you have a very focused niche narrow and deep audience um, that your advertising clients want to be involved with. On the other side, you're also creating content that they can use in their own channels as well. A lot of the demand that we have put on, you know, us is the beautiful content that Alice, Juliet, Philippa put together, that brands now want to put into their own channels as well. So there's a lot of value there in getting this high quality home category content put together. You're not going to get that from a Facebook account manager. You know, so there's definitely a lot of institutional knowledge that we can bring to, you know, kind of strategy, content, um, imagery, anything to sort of fill those hungry channels. Um, we get so many people just asking us off the bat for free if we, they can just have a bunch of images. Not quite how it works. But um, so, yeah, to answer that question, we're not trying to kind of swim in the same lane as high scale, um, high volume. I guess a lot of the time, you know, it's like, sure, you know, you can get all of the eyeballs on some, you know, social media or whatever. Mm. But the thing is about having this kind of like niche audience, people that are actually engaged in the act of, you know, creating a home, it's like they come to us knowing exactly what products, you know, are available in our local market too. Mm. And I, I guess that's where, you know, you can kind of, there's been a lot of talk lately about the future role of magazines, especially after Bauer, but even before that with the advertising kind of context. But like, that's the thing, isn't it? If it's lasting relationships or things that are meant to last or things that are very niche and serving an industry that retain value, there's got to still be a role for, you know, like when you look at like the New Yorker and the like, which often doesn't have a strong advertising base, but does have a strong readership base. There is always room for slower, stronger content, but maybe not all of it that we have at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the hard thing at the moment too, is that everyone is making content and so it becomes quite a sea of a lot going on. But I guess the thing about, you know, media brands and magazines is that there's people that are specialists in, you know, creating, curating something that has greater meaning than just an image and a caption. Um, you know, it takes you a little bit deeper. And, you know, I think those experiences are really invaluable today, especially, you know, we're spending so much time in front of our screens and, to be able to get away from that and have something that enriches your life as well feels really meaningful. 
Yeah, and how how are you as an operation bridging that divide as well between that lovely physical artefact that you can um, dream with and then, you know, maybe the images online that people can build their own Pinterest boards for their kitchen or whatever it might be? Yeah, so, I mean, while, you know, the, the print magazine is like kind of the nucleus of what we do, it is a multifaceted thing and that's really important for us too. Um, you know, and that's like reaching people through EDMs where you can keep them up to date between issues or, you know, actually utilising that content that we've created across social media platforms um, and having that, you know, I mean, primarily Instagram, we don't really dabble in Facebook anymore. Um, we just felt like it wasn't really the environment that our content belonged between kitten memes and American politics. Mm. Um so, yeah, I mean, Instagram is still really a key um, tool for us. And it's also, you know, being able to have that opportunity for direct engagement where the letters to the editor page went out a long time ago. You know, <laughs> I can do a Q&A um, via Instagram stories and, you know, 60 to 100 people will ask a question, whether it's, you know, about how the magazine started or the sort of local lighting that they could use for their house or, you know, how to store kids' toys to, you know, how to become a stylist. So, yeah, I mean, it is really important for us to have that kind of holistic approach and also for advertisers, you know, where we can perhaps do like a specific EDM to, you know, share where to shop local at the moment or, you know, amplify a small business's message um, and help them get their, you know, their products out to across the wider audience as well. Yeah, what do you make of things like um, in Australia where there are moves for those big content uh, takers and profiters from the the Googles and the Facebooks to actually have to share revenue with some of the content creators? And uh, I, I know that's uh, just, just in kind of the news realm at the moment, but it could be a really interesting development. Yeah, I, look, I've been trying to, you know, keep up with that closely. I mean, it seems like quite a blunt instrument because there's a lot of nuance between who's creating what and who's actually distributing what. And, um, you know, you can't argue that those platforms do distribute, but they are also monetizing content at no cost. So I, whether it's the right way to do it, I don't know. But I do think that those guys have really, you know, the platforms have managed to operate with impunity for nearly two decades now. Uh, building, you know, trillion dollar companies and creating this sort of, I guess, like structural problem within the industry that, you know, there's just a complete trading imbalance between, you know, who you can reach for what. So I think it's a good step in the right direction. I don't know if New Zealand's got enough scale to kind of influence them. They might just pull the plug on it. <laughs> like gutting the industry and then not paying tax while they do it is a pretty, pretty good trick, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like with with your kind of, you know, uh, magazine publishers association hat on, like how is the industry faring at the moment? As there was a lot of commentary after the Bauer closure uh, saying that maybe that wasn't necessarily um, a health of the industry rather than the, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the readiness of the international owner to do something hard. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off.
Kia ora. sorry for this interruption, it's Alice Neville here, I am the food editor at The Spin-Off, and I just wanted to pop in and tell you about our food podcast, Dietary Requirements, hosted by me, Simon Day, and Sophie Gilmore. It celebrates all there is to know about eating and drinking. There's cooking tips, there's special guests, there's what we've been eating and drinking lately, and we try not to chew into the microphone too much. So if you like food and drink, listen in. You won't regret it. It's, it's at thespinoff.co.nz and all your favorite podcast providers. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I can't speak for what happened there at Bauer. It certainly did have a sort of head office feel about it. Um, you know, we really feel for the 237 people who are, you know, out of a job there, but we think that some of these titles will come back. Um, under different ownership. But the industry, you know, you, you need to remember that whilst Bauer was the biggest publisher and had this sort of heritage marquee brands, um, it by no means was the largest chunk. And, you, you know, it might not actually change the actual kind of dynamics of the industry as much as people think. You know, Bauer is a big brand, but there's another 200 or maybe 250 magazine publishers in New Zealand that just sort of go under the radar creating all this great content. So yes, very tough in the industry, like all industries at the moment, but when you've got a range of different, you know, revenue streams and, um, you know, subject matter, that's all New Zealand, New Zealand made and owned, um, you know, there's going to be green shoots coming out the other end. And how does the, uh, landscape look at the moment with, um, you know, we've heard that lots of industries have had a really big decline in revenue coming through and advertising is one of those ones that's said to be, uh, you know, the marketing spend is said to be pulling back a lot. What's what's happening out there for small publishers? Oh, look, I think it's quite varied and a lot of it comes down to this, what we were talking about earlier, the relationships that people have with clients and also how much you can actually help your clients at the moment, you know, we've been doing a lot of extra work for, you know, our, our partners who have stayed with us sort of in this tough time, but we're kind of doubling down on what work we can do for them in different ways to reach people. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly tough out there when marketing is the first thing to get, get the ax, but I think most publishers are just pulling in on those um, relationships they have. Yeah, and you mentioned briefly there that maybe some of those mastheads may find new homes. I mean, you'd you'd think that there were quite a few viable, um, still viable things, but yeah, the 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 model still maintains to be a really interesting thing as to do we end up with a situation where you get like uh, wealthy people buying things in a patronage situation, like newspapers in America, or you know, um, yeah, yeah, like what 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 are what are the ways for these things to to maintain their viability? Jeff Bezos can buy us if he wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will be interesting because if you if you do look at some of those legacy, um, you know, heritage um, magazine brands, um, there is a lot of interest in that kind of, especially the journalistic title. So perhaps that might be the sort of person that has a bit of money to invest in and maintain that. What kind of things has this disruption and pause kind of um, brought about in terms of the things people are thinking about changing? Like, um, quite remarkable that that monthly magazines or less than you know less frequently than daily publishing was kind of left to hang out and 
hang out and dry to dry for uh for, for six weeks there. Um yeah, yeah, what what kind of changes does that bring about in the industry? Yeah, so that was I think that was um a tough move for a lot of people's businesses, you know, of all products that were stocked on supermarket shelves, magazines were the only ones that weren't allowed to be. Um, so having that distribution channel halted like that it was really tough for the publishing industry. Um, and then I guess individually as titles, it all comes down to, you know, where we were in our publishing cycle. We personally had an issue go on the shelves one week before the um, lockdown here. So we were in a position with the production of our next issue where fortuitously I had shot most of the projects that we were going to be featuring and you know some other things have come about where we've been able to you know create content um, from our homes um, and you know I know other titles are thinking about different ways that they can do things to you know m maintain their production I guess um, and then some of them you know cuisine they had to just basically put a hold on their 200th issue but it's going on sale next week and they've also made that you know available for free download um so i guess it's just sort of working incrementally and you know also every day it sort of things change or has been changing it seems like you know we're going in one direction now we're in level three um but yeah it was a bit of a tricky time <laughs> Yeah, remarkable. I mean, at the same time, though, the kind of cadence of longer form journalism and, and content creation isn't as badly affected. Um, you know, it, it, it was really bad if you had a magazine that you're about to print and it's sitting at the printers and they can't distribute it for you. Not good. But um, at the same time, right before that lockdown, there was like a massive upswing in sales at supermarkets. You know, people, it was a real kind of light in the, you know, tunnel, so to speak, that people still really have that demand for their interests and their local content. So we should be back on track next week. Ah, that's so great to hear. And what, what kind of advice do you have for people uh, at the moment who are thinking about kind of, um, I don't know, maybe someone's out there and they're thinking, ah, oh, maybe one of those uh, magazines I'd like to get involved with and bring back, you know, like what does it take to make a media operation work in the world at the moment? Yeah, think before you jump is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, well, you know, I mean, it's two, yeah, it's two different things. One's starting a media brand from scratch and one's reviving a brand um, who already has a great audience because yes. the biggest thing for, um, you know, establishing a media brand is creating that audience. Um, and, you know, that's, the hardest part at, at these days so if you have an existing audience it's you know working out different ways you can reach them um but if you don't then yeah you're really building from scratch i guess and um what will your version of success be both kind of professionally but also kind of personally with what you're building with homestyle um yeah that's a good question i guess we don't want well in a way this moment doesn't define our business it's um another hurdle in you know many ongoing hurdles of running your own business and you know while it's been yeah a really tricky one to navigate um 
we feel really optimistic about continuing to produce a product that um, we feel like, you know, is a is a, on a topic that um, resonates, you know, before, during, and after COVID virus. Um, and also, we really, you know, hope that there's some kind of, you know, creativity that emerges in the kind of adversity. Um, and also, you know, being a small local business is, you know, that feels like a way forward for us too, you know. It's probably what protected us through this, being small and nimble. And, um, yeah, keeping, to work, keeping on working in that way is what we'll be focusing on in the future. Yeah, and a greater success to that actually would be, you know, and this isn't just for our business or media, like you relate to this, Simon, but is just this, this kind of hopeful swing to buying local and being taking notice of what things actually cost to make and, um, yeah, and to distribute and the time and effort that goes into producing them. You know, I, I ho- I'm hopeful that that will be a version of success that everyone gets to see in New Zealand this year. Ah, that's a magic thought. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's Alice Lines and Nicholas Burrows of Homestyle. And Nicholas is also the chair at the Magazine Publishers Association. Thanks so much. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you for having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.